This is an ABC podcast. La Nina is bringing torrential rain to the east coast and also giant swarms of mosquitoes. They're irritating, but they're also spreading diseases like Japanese encephalitis and Ross River virus. And extreme weather events that help them breed are likely to become more frequent. Great. Luckily, there are things you can do to survive the mozzie apocalypse. I'm sorry, I had to. I'm Hilary Harper, and this is Life Matters, broadcasting from Nam. Ah, such a horrible sound. There are swarms of mozzies afflicting much of the East Coast right now, and that is set to continue for some time. How are you coping, if that is you? Associate Professor Cameron Webb is a medical entomologist and a mosquito expert at at New South Wales Health Pathology and the University of Sydney. Cameron, welcome to Life Matters. Great to have you with us. How bad is the mozzie season this year, Cameron? It's it's not well. It's looking very good if you're a mosquito. Uh, maybe not so great if you're one of these people who uh, are often bitten by mosquitoes and react badly to them. So mosquitoes have a pretty simple life cycle in many in many ways. They uh, are completely reliant on water and warmth. And unfortunately, there has been plenty of water that's come into the environment over the last few weeks. We've had flooding in many areas. Um, and as soon as that flood water recedes into stagnant pools and puddles in the floodplains and wetlands, it's going to coincide with the warmer temperatures that uh, summer will bring. And that means that mosquito populations not only will uh, continue to increase, but they probably will persist right through summer. We're already seeing some big numbers of mosquitoes in uh, western New South Wales in places like Victoria. So uh, unfortunately, we're off to a bad start uh, and it's not going to get any better uh, very quickly, unfortunately. Well, I did wonder if Mozzie-pocalypse was a bit of an overreach, but I noticed one of your recent news articles, the headline was, Mozzies are everywhere right now, including giant ones and those that make us sick. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not feeling particularly safe about it. Uh, do they swarm as such? I mean, do you, do you get a swarm like you might with bees? Yeah, so mosquitoes uh, vary a lot in their sort of biology depending on the type of mosquito that you have, but you certainly will get these uh, swarms that assist mating of the mosquitoes. But also, I guess we we might affectionately refer to the swarms as the as the huge numbers of mosquitoes that descend on us or that we inadvertently walk into if we if we're near their habitats. So um, certainly we can get we can get exposed to high numbers of mosquitoes very quickly. Um, you know, particularly uh, with conditions like we've been experiencing in recent weeks. Yeah, we're hearing these stories of people having to pressure hose these giant mounds of tiny corpses off their decks in the morning. Cameron, how long do you think this 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 kind of peak season is going to last this year? So I think the first thing to to mention is, is that we do see this explosion in flying insect populations, uh, both during spring, but particularly uh, wet spring. So it, it's worth noting that a lot of these uh, insects that people are, are seeing may not be mosquitoes. So you get midges and other flying insects attracted to the lights around your home. But unfortunately, of course, mosquitoes are, are part of the mix there as well. The problem is, is that um, the conditions that are occurring at the moment are going to continue right into summer. So um, much of eastern Australia is completely waterlogged. Uh, these ground pools and puddles are going to persist right through many of the uh, areas of, of Australia and, and provide great habitat for mosquitoes. So 
Mosquitoes lay their eggs in and around these um, uh, uh, ponds or puddles or water holding containers. Um, and during the warmer months, it might only take them a week or so for those eggs to hatch and complete development and the mosquitoes emerge. They only live for about three weeks, but their populations can build and be sustained over many weeks and months. And I think, unfortunately, that's something we'll be facing uh, this summer because as the weather warms up, uh, it's probably not going to warm up enough that all these pools and puddles are going to dry up quickly and, and be removed from their, um, um, for their use by mosquitoes. We're speaking with Associate Professor Dr Cameron Webb, who, as you can hear, is an expert on mosquitoes from New South Wales Health Pathology and the University of Sydney. Cameron, how do health authorities respond to mosquito outbreaks in the first instance? Is it, you know, like in the movies where there's a giant flamethrower and they just wade through them? Please say I think yes. we have this. No, unfortunately, it's a bit more subtle than that. And I guess one of the reasons is that, um, you know, we haven't got a good reputation um, in terms of mosquito control over recent decades. And so, you know, the widespread use of, uh, of insecticides to knock out the mosquito populations can have uh, not only an adverse impact on the environment, but also um, uh, build resistance amongst mosquito populations as well. And so while I'm sure that many of your listeners would be quite happy to uh, have a kill them all, uh, whatever it takes approach to mosquitoes, uh, we're a li little bit more ecologically sustainable in our in our approaches these days. So there's a couple of different ways that health authorities in states and territories in Australia would address this. Um, sometimes it is through the judicious use of mosquito control agents in the wetlands. The products we use these days um, are much more sensitive and targeted to mosquitoes. They're often applied to the wetlands and stopping those mosquitoes emerging. But probably one of the most important tools that health authorities have is our surveillance programs for mosquitoes and the pathogens they carry. And so um, together with local councils, um, health authorities monitor mosquito populations, uh, how they change from week to week, not only the abundance of mosquitoes, but the types of mosquitoes are circulating. Those mozzies can then be tested to see whether they're carrying any viruses. Um, and that provides an early warning to the community uh, about activity of these viruses and hopefully um, assist them in, in taking steps to avoid mosquito bites as, as much as possible. Wow, the text message line has exploded, Cameron Webb, with questions for you. Um, we might see if we can whip through a few of them quickly, though I do just want to read this one out uh, before we start. I saw a job ad a few months ago, must have experience breeding mosquitoes. And I thought, who has that? Then I realised, your guest. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's it's a niche field, but it's an important one, isn't it, Cameron? Um, it, it is, but unfortunately, m most of us do have experience because there are uh, mosquitoes that love living in our backyards around Australia. And so you might not know it, but um, there's probably uh, many mosquitoes breeding in the backyards of your listeners. Uh, over recent weeks and, and hopefully they won't be uh, in the future after they've listened to some of the things we talk about today. Well, and that is actually first question of the rank. There's pooling water in my backyard from the persistent rain. Is there anything I can do to reduce that good, good breeding habitat or make the pools less attractive to mosquitoes? So the mosquitoes that live in our backyards, for the most part, they're trying to find those water holding containers. So that could be everything from um, the drains and sump pits around your backyard, your blocked roof gutters, your potted plant sources, your bird baths, but particularly, um, you know, plastic containers you've got in the backyard. Uh, kids' toys are a great one as well because they've been sort of discarded in the backyard. They've all they've got lots of nooks and crannies that catch the rainwater, and mosquitoes will lay their eggs in and around those. So as best you can, clean up that. Uh, the backyard so that you haven't got those water holding containers. 
if you've got something like a bird bath um, or bowls and things that you keep out for pets or wildlife to give them water, just uh, flush it out, uh, replace it once a week. If there are any mosquitoes, you'll disrupt their, their breeding cycle. Make sure your rainwater tank is properly screened as well, stopping them accessing that. Um, and then that way, uh, you'll just sort of generally reduce the amount of mosquitoes in your in your backyard. And, and then some mozzies around our home that um, can really be a, a more persistent pest problem uh, during the warmer months. There's that perennial one too. Uh, mosquitoes love biting me but leave my husband alone, says one person. Is there something wrong with my blood? No, there's nothing wrong with you if mosquitoes uh, bite you more than uh, your friends and family. We, this is a phenomenon that we do know is true. Um, and... Scientists for many decades have been trying to sort of unpick the reasons why a mosquito is more likely to bite one person more than others. And there's a couple of reasons we do that. Firstly, we might try to want to know who in the community is most susceptible to mosquito bites and consequently mosquito-borne disease. Um, perhaps we might be thinking about new types of mosquito repellents that we could develop. Um, but importantly, we might be wanting to know what's that sort of secret ingredient um, uh, that might lure mosquitoes in that we can then incorporate into traps so that we um, uh, can do mosquito control. Um, but the problem is, is that it's a really complex puzzle to solve. And so it's only the female mosquito that bites. And when she's looking for an animal or particularly a person to bite, she can sense the carbon dioxide we breathe out. But then it's probably the smell of our skin that really turns them on. And there are hundreds of different chemical compounds on our skin. And the cocktail of smells that you have, uh, if it's a bit more attractive to mosquitoes than your friends and family, you're the one who's likely to get bitten. So you can't There's change that through diet or anything? Uh, unfortunately, there's there's no evidence that your a change of diet will will change that sort of chemical smell on your skin. There's nothing you can eat or drink um, to stop you being bitten by mosquitoes. Um, some studies overseas have suggested that you probably inherit your mosquito attractiveness from your parents. And some recent studies out of North America suggest that those people that are more likely to get bitten by mosquitoes have a higher concentration of carboxylic acid on their skin. But even then, the problem is, is that the types of acids on those individuals changes from person to person. So there's not that one perfect ingredient that the mosquitoes are attracted to. So it's a very complex kind of question. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's worth remembering that I'm yet to meet a person in Australia who is not bitten by any mosquitoes. It only takes one mosquito bite to transmit some of the pathogens that will make us sick. And so whether you think you're a mosquito magnet or not, you should be taking steps to avoid mosquito bites when you're out and about. Another question on that. Harry from Point Ploma says, why do some mozzies bite harder than others? A couple over the past few nights have felt like Pinocchio with a sharper nose. <laughs> well, we, we do see a strange diversity of mosquitoes at the moment. We see this in spring anyway, but particularly because of the conditions and all of the rainfall, we're seeing a, an increase in the types of mosquitoes we generally refer to as floodwater mosquitoes. These mozzies tend to be a little bit larger as well. Maybe you sort of feel them a bit more uh, when they bite. But it's also important to remember that you won't always feel mosquitoes biting. And so um, a lot of our mozzies have evolved over a long time to be pretty sneaky in when they, uh, they grab a blood meal from us. And so you should never really be waiting until you see mosquitoes or feel mosquito bites uh, before you put on that mosquito repellent. So as we head into summer, I think, you know, getting into the routine of using mosquito repellents uh, before you spend any time outdoors is a really good thing to do. Now, repellents, many questions coming in about repellents. Monica says, do the natural mosquito bans work? There are some alleging that they're 14 day bans available for kids. And another one says, do the electronic mozzie zappers work? What's the data on those things, Cameron? 
So to talk about the mosquito repellent wristbands and patches first, uh, unfortunately, they don't provide whole body protection against mosquito bites. And so I know that people are sometimes reluctant to put on mosquito repellents. They might not like the feel of them or maybe a bit reluctant to put them on children. But it's important to note that the products that you get from your local supermarket or pharmacy, those products that have been through the testing process by uh, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority are safe to use. So follow the directions. Uh, most of those products can be used on children uh, above the age of 12 months. Those colourful bands and patches, they just don't provide adequate protection. So generally, I would avoid those. In terms of the electronic zappers, um, there's a couple of different categories here to talk about, which I think is really important. So any devices that use bright blue lights, like electrocutor devices, they're good at killing a whole range of other flying insects, things like moths and, and other insects like that. They generally don't work very good um, in killing mosquitoes. Um, so I wouldn't rely on those to protect yourself from mosquito bites. Any of the ultrasonic type devices I would avoid. There's no evidence that sound repels mosquitoes, so you can avoid your apps for your smartphone as well. They're not going to protect you. Um, but the the plug-in units, which are sometimes sold or marketed as mosquito zappers, can be actually very useful. They plug in or are powered uh, by batteries and they release insecticide from an impregnated cardboard pad or reservoir of oil. Um, that insecticide can be a very powerful knockdown of mosquitoes. And so think about them as a smokeless mosquito coil, very useful uh, to use indoors um, at night, um, particularly if you don't have uh, the opportunity to have your windows and doors screened to stop mosquitoes coming indoors. Now, Cameron Webb, you said that the repellents that are available on the market have all been screened for health by our public health authorities. Susie in Newcastle says, my daughter's pregnant. Is it, is it safe for her to use those on-skin mosquito repellents too? Yeah, there's no problems at all. Um, check the directions on the label, um, but there's no evidence that any using any of those insect repellents uh, will be a problem. Even if you're a little bit cautious about that, check the range of products that are available. It's important to remember that the concentration of the active ingredients in these repellents will vary uh, quite a bit between the different types of formulations and the brands. You don't necessarily need to have um, you know, a high concentration of active ingredient if you're only outdoors for short periods of time because the concentration of the product determines how long it lasts not how many mosquitoes that keep, you keep away. So uh, have a look at some of the different products and, and what works best for you because really the product that works best is the product that um, you're more, more you're more comfortable using in a safe and effective way routinely. Associate Professor Dr Cameron Webb is our guest today on Life Matters, a mosquito expert from the University of Sydney. Cameron, what about the environment? I mean, the, if we're putting these chemicals on our skin and going out and, I don't know, swimming in rivers or hanging out in the bush, is that going to have an impact on those ecosystems? So this this question does come up from time to time, and and generally speaking, the the, the concentrations of products that we're putting on our skin is relatively low. By the time it washes off or goes down the drain or, or gets into waterways, um, the concentrations are generally so low that it's not likely to have any sort of ecological consequences, which um, which is good. And it's also important to remember that these products that we're using. Uh, insect repellents, not insecticides. So products like diethyltoluamide, picaridin, and oil of lemon eucalyptus, which are the active ingredients in the repellents that most health authorities are recommending, they don't actually kill mosquitoes. They just essentially 
either mask your smell or switch off the blood feeding appetite of mosquitoes. And so um, you shouldn't think about them necessarily as insecticides the same way that you would against, you know, in terms of some of the other products that that you might spray around your home that do, that do have warnings about um, using near waterways and aquatic habitats. Martin in Brisbane texted in that uh, they don't really get mozzies in their apartment anymore since he started allowing the spiders to continue living on the ceiling. So that's a permaculture approach there from Martin. Cameron, we should ask about mosquito-borne diseases because quite a few people are saying uh, which are the diseases we should be worried about and how bad are they this year with the, the increase in the mosquitoes? Yeah, so there's a few mosquito-borne pathogens in Australia that um, we need to be concerned about. Um, Ross River virus is the mosquito-borne pathogen that infects the most people every year. So on average across Australia, we get about 5,000 cases of disease. Um, the symptoms can be incredibly variable, um, uh, fever, rash, headache, joint pain. Uh, in some cases, it can be incredibly mild, but in others, it can be severely debilitating and last for many weeks or months. We're, we're fortunate, though, in that the outcomes of that disease are not fatal. However, it, things have changed a little bit over the last year or so because we have had um, the arrival and widespread activity of Japanese encephalitis virus, um, particularly in southeastern Australia. And even though um, there are fewer cases of disease, we've had about 42 cases of disease over the last 12 months. Um, unfortunately, seven people have died from that. And so that is a pathogen that can cause an illness, which is um, uh, potentially life-threatening. And so um, there are concerns about um, the activity of this virus again this summer. There's already been some evidence of activity in Western New South Wales. And the conditions, the environmental conditions uh, this summer are exactly the same as we saw last summer, uh, thanks to La Nina. So um, I think the important message here is that uh, there are going to be a lot of mosquitoes around in many parts of Australia this summer. We have viruses active um, that can be transmitted by mosquitoes. And so we a mosquito, we shouldn't be thinking about mosquitoes as mostly an annoyance. They are a health risk and we should be taking those steps to reduce our, our mosquito bites as much as possible. Does that mean that, you know, making sure repellents are available in flood affected areas should be a public health issue? It shouldn't just be a, a kind of left to the market issue? Well, health authorities um, around Australia are looking at ways in which they can help distribute mosquito repellents to uh, certain communities that are deemed to be at risk. And um, I can just speak to for New South Wales in that repellents have been uh, distributed to many public health units and local government um, in these areas, not only where they're being impacted by floods and seeing an increase of mosquito populations, but where there is evidence that there has been Japanese encephalitis virus active in the past. So together with a range of different initiatives, um, health authorities are looking at the role of, of insect repellents as, as helping keep our, helping uh, to keep our community safe. What can you do if, if your local supermarket is sold out? It's been happening a lot in southern New South Wales lately. Yeah, I think that there's always we shouldn't rely completely on on insect repellents. I mean, even though they're they are a very useful tool, if they're not available to you, there's a, a range of different other ways you can try to reduce um, mosquito bites. Um, Probably one of the best things is uh, provide a physical barrier against mosquitoes. So wearing uh, long sleeve shirts, particularly uh, loose fitting light coloured uh, shirts, long pants and covered shoes will provide um, a physical uh, barrier against mosquito bites, uh, particularly if you're spending a lot of time, uh, you know, working or, or, or fishing, bushwalking, uh, gardening um, outdoors for long periods of time, particularly in the late afternoon, dusk, evening, and, and particularly that first thing in the, in the morning when mosquitoes are most active. Um, 
Uh, and there's always the the use of um, those plug-in insecticide type devices that you can use around your home if you're able to uh, screening your windows and doors to make sure mosquitoes aren't, aren't coming inside uh, are very useful as well and of course if you're out walking about um, you know you can always use netting on the on the kids prams or or there's also some pretty um, you know a different range of sort of head nets and things like that if mosquitoes are particularly bad uh, and you're having to spend a lot of time outdoors yeah I can see a run on beekeeper suits coming Coming soon in some of the flood affected areas. Cameron, just a, a, a quick, I guess, two part question to finish up with. I, I understand that some scientists are looking at genetic modification to try and uh, decrease breeding in mosquito populations. How far away are we from that being a solution? And is it okay to just kind of kill off mosquitoes? It's a great question, isn't it? Because scientists have been really good at, at working out why mosquito bites make us sick, working out better ways to kill mosquitoes. We're now thinking about ways in which uh, through genetic modification or perhaps the introduction of uh, parasites or pathogens into mosquitoes in the laboratory and then releasing them into the field might be a, a way to possibly even eradicate mosquitoes. But what we haven't been very good at is working out what the ecological role of mosquitoes are. Um, we know they're food for birds and bats and fish and frogs. They pollinate plants. But we're yet to find a plant or animal on the planet that is completely reliant on mosquitoes. The thing is, a lot of these new technologies which are showing great pro uh, promise in terms of either um, modifying or reducing mosquito populations are really encouraging. Um, and a lot of them are directed towards mosquitoes that are living in basically our rubbish in our cities and suburbs. And these are mosquitoes that love the, in the, these water holding containers, particularly across um, Southeast Asia, the Pacific and South America. Uh, these mosquitoes like the yellow fever mosquito that drives outbreaks of dengue and Zika and chik chikungunya virus. But the ecological role of those mosquitoes is probably relatively low. I'm, I'm happy, to ha happy to see them um, you know, decimated or even eradicated in some instances. But it's when we pretty, look at the mosquitoes yeah. that are coming from our wetlands, that's a different question. And I don't think I really want to sign off on the eradication of those mosquitoes just yet until we understand what their ecological role is. Okay. Put the flamethrower away for the moment. Cameron Webb, thank you so much for joining us today on Life Matters. It's been a fascinating insight into these tiny little pests. Much appreciate your time. Thanks, Hilary. Associate Professor Dr Cameron Webb, a mosquito expert from the from New South Wales Health Pathology and the University of Sydney. And uh, text saying, is there an advantage to using DEET, D-E-E-T? I think that's what Cameron was talking about when he mentioned diethyltoluamide, so you'll find it on the label. And yes, that is a highly trusted thing to use. Uh, some tough local stories coming out of flood-affected towns in New South Wales, among them the mozzie issue, and a lot of grit as well. That's next on Life ABC RN with PK in the morning and Andy in the afternoon. Are you now asking constituents to forget the forced handshakes and wallpaper over their anger and just vote for you anyway? No, I don't care if it was PM down. The stories making Australia talk. Caroline Dennett has dropped the mic on Shell. Do you think that they'll come after you? There was absolutely no malice intended. I have loved my job. Join the discussion with Andy Park on RN Drive. Today from 6 on ABC RN. Some of the families who fled the war in Ukraine ended up in central west New South Wales. And in the town of Molong, the local community pulled out all the stops to welcome them, including transforming an empty convent into a cosy, safe home for two of those families who had young children. Hundreds of volunteers came together to help renovate that building. It was a real community effort. And then came the rains. More than 100 mills fell in just six hours, leading to flash flooding. Local 
said it came down the main street like an ocean. Thankfully, the newly converted convent did survive and the Ukrainian families living there were then quick to roll up their sleeves and help with the clean-up in the town. Matthew French is principal at St Joseph's Catholic Primary School in Molong. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Hilary. How are you going? Good, thank you. Now, we did try and get hold of uh, someone from one of those Ukrainian families, but understandably, there's a, f- a bit going on there and uh, she was unavailable. So, Matthew, uh, transforming this convent into a home really was a, a community effort. What do you think inspired everyone to come together to make that project happen? Oh, look, I, I really think the, the town spirit, the community spirit of Molong is is very, very big. It's... um. It's an amazing little town, really. They've, they've had their adversity over the years, and I think given the chance to help um, our Ukrainian families move in was a, a wonderful thing for, that they wanted to be a part of. Was there something in particular about coming from that conflict in Ukraine, you think, that was persuasive? Oh, definitely. They, um, we've seen the hardship that they've endured over the last few months and wanted to make sure that they were safe and they were happy. And so tell us a bit about what it looked like when people got together, Matthew. How many people turned up? Oh, look, I, I don't think I could be able to count, to be honest. Um, the day of the opening of the convent, there was over 200 people attended Mass and then attended the opening. It was a, an amazing community day, really. But people, it wasn't just Molong people. People came from far and wide. There was um, Millthorpe Public School were involved, Kinross Wallaroy School in Orange were involved, um, Macaulay Catholic Primary School in Orange, St Mary's in Orange were involved. But also people came from places like Trundle and another place out west to come and help paint and um, do renovations to the building over the sort of 12 to 14 weeks that the project was um, going on for. And what kind of state was the building in before you all came together to to uh, renovate it, Matthew? Tell us a bit about its history. Uh, oh, look, it was in a pretty ordinary state. So the building was, I think it was about 1937 it was built and um, we had a, a sister of St. Joseph move in in 2018, and she was moved to the um, the building next door at sort of halfway through 2018, it was going to cost a few hundred thousand dollars to fix the building up. That was the state that it was in. Um, but obviously there wasn't the money there in the parish to be able to do that. So this was a bit of a godsend, really. I was at a... Um, at a, a function in Orange with some of the kids at school, and Father Greg Bellamy came and got me, and he said, look, we've got... Want a bit of a chat? We've got um, Pip Waters here. Pip's a teacher at James Sheen, and she's got a bit of an idea, but she's in a bit of a, a hard spot at the moment. She's got some Ukrainian people living with her. Where do we put them? And Father Greg came up with the idea of using the convent. So it was a bit of a on-the-spot thing to start with, and it just so happened that the, the people who were going to be involved were in the one spot at that time. So I suppose it was really meant to be. Yes, it certainly does take on the aura of being meant to be, doesn't it, when you see it in hindsight. How yep. was it for those families settling in, Greg? Because, I mean, that's tough times, isn't it, uprooting yourself from your home country and, and coming to a completely new place? Oh, look, I, I'd, I'd hate to think about what they've been through. You know, I've, I've spoken to a few of them over the last few months and, um, you know, they've been on the run, I suppose. Sort of getting out of the Ukraine was hard enough and then into Austria and then into London and they've been all over the world. But uh, Pip, Pip was amazing. She took on the family straight away. Well, she, she actually put in a, an application, said that she was happy to take a family. And when they came, um, they'd love the area so much. So they, the family we've got here at the moment, one of the families we've got here at the moment were the first family to come over the mountains. And then there's, I think there's been six other families follow at this stage. So, yeah, they've, they've had a horrid time.
Well, yeah, I mean, you've had this flash flooding. We've, we've been looking at the images and the video on the news, the shipping containers floating down the main street. What, would, what did it look like at its peak, Matthew? Well, I wasn't actually there. I've got an injury at the moment. I wasn't oh, no. able to be there. But, but um, look, I've seen images and spoken to many, many people about it. The floods in 2005 were the worst floods that no longer had for, look, I don't know, for a long, long time. But the talk is that these floods are much worse. Um, the water came really quickly. It smashed through windows. And as it smashed through windows, it's absolutely destroyed properties. The main street of Molong is pretty much destroyed the, the main block, nearly all the way to the end of the block. It's gone further this time than what it ever had before. Um, you know, people are in danger. They're in shops and in businesses trying to clean a little bit. That, and I don't think there was no expectation this water was coming like it did. So it's very, very frightening for a lot of people at the time. Not just heartbreaking for the damage that it's done, but it was very frightening as well. Yes, indeed. Well, and as you say, lots of homes and businesses affected. But I also understand that many of the community spaces, the places where people come and gather, have, have suffered damage. How challenging is that for everyone? Really challenging. Mullins, as I say, Mullins are a very close-knit community and they do a lot um, for the community. There's some wonderful people here. It's a big farming community. Um, so the hockey, hockey in Molong is really strong. They they built a it's a multi-purpose facility, I suppose, but mainly is for hockey. Um, the Orange Hockey Association actually has hockey games here now, which is great for our town. Um, but it's been absolutely destroyed. That that field, hundreds of thousands, maybe million dollars worth of damage to it. It's unrecognisable for how it is now. So it's been a fantastic facility in Molong. As I say, it's only been about three three years ago that it was built. And all of a sudden, it's been taken away from them. The um, the recreational ground where Molong Magpies play their rugby union, I think um, Molong Bulls play their rugby league, and the the cricket it's the cricket ground as well. It's been destroyed. Uh, the fencing, which was only put up a few years ago, has been destroyed. The canteen sort of change room area would have been nearly totally underwater. So there's so much to do down there. There's there's really nowhere for people to gather at the moment because of the damage that's been done. Well, and we do, you know, talk about resilience and grit and things like that, but it's completely reasonable to just feel a bit devastated for a while, isn't it? Do you think people are able to kind of sit with what's going on and not feel the pressure to to kind of move forward relentlessly, Matthew? Uh, Interesting you say that. I was speaking to a um, a lady yesterday who um, is considering bringing her daughter to our school next year, and um, I'd heard that she wasn't going to reopen her business, but... In speaking to her, she said that she's definitely going to reopen. At the moment, she's in the process of working out insurance. She's worked way too hard to let it go. So people are trying to get on with, with reopening businesses and um, trying to get on with their lives. I, I suppose the world doesn't stop for anyone, doesn't it, which is, which is a worry um, in, in times like this. But at the same time, the resilience shown by the people here in Molong has been amazing. They've they've got on with it. Uh, businesses were reopened a couple of days later. They they wanted to do that for the community. Um, as I say, a very strong community, and they believe in, in keeping things local, which is uh, you know it's great for everyone involved. So it will be a long process, but they're they're getting back on their feet. People people are amazing when in situations like this. Yes, indeed. And I understand the, the families from Ukraine have been rolling up their sleeves and getting stuck in too. What kind of work are, are people involved in like that? Uh, well, I spoke to um, Vicar last week and Anna and Yulia and Irina, and they said that um, they, they wanted to be involved. 
they've seen what the people of Molong have done for them. It was an opportunity for them to give back to the community. They've, they've, they've been very emotional with everything that's been done for them, particularly on the opening day, uh, lots of tears and, and, and lots of um, thanks over that time. So they really wanted to get in and help. They wanted to give back to the community, but also they, they want to immerse themselves in the community as well. They want to be part of the Molong community. And as I said, it's a, even though it was a tragedy, it was a terrible event, it was a time when people get together and it was time when they were able to meet people. And make and make a few friends and acquaintances. Well, yeah, and I mean, if they've been through trauma of conflict and trauma of um, being a refugee, and then you've got the flooding as well, it can't be easy. It's fantastic to see that there's there's an ability to to get involved in community rebuilding. We're speaking today with Matthew French, who's the principal at St Joseph's Primary School in Molong, which has seen a bit of action in the last week or so. They had a hundred mils of rain in six hours, and a flood went down the main street, as you heard from Matthew, just pretty much devastating the entire main street. Matthew, you mentioned insurance before. Have people been able to negotiate getting insurance again? Because there's a lot of places near you where that's not the case, isn't it? It is, yeah. Look, I'm not 100% sure with that. I I know people are going through the process at the moment. I I don't think it's a really easy process, to be honest. I think there's a lot of of things they've got to be able to do, a lot of of things they've got to have in place before that the insurance can be be finalised. So it'll be interesting to see what where they finish up with their insurances. Um, you know, we're hopeful that the insurance will come through and then they're able to reopen their businesses because Molong is a thriving little little town. The main streets, it's very difficult to get a parking spot down. There's so many different businesses down there, very self-sustained. So we're hoping that it, the people are able to open up again. Um, what? Yeah, sorry. No, that's Very all right. Uh, yes, indeed. I, I imagine it must have been a relief that the convent was largely unscathed from the floods. It is a, a big relief after the work that had gone on there. I mean, we're in a situation, Mullong has, has got a few hills in it. Uh, the school and the convent is up on a hill. It's, a, it's really only a block away from the main street, but um, there was never any danger of the, the water getting up to us, um, thankfully, because there would have been a lot more houses go under if it had. It'd have to, I think it would have to rain for a week, 100 mils a day for that to happen. But look, we're very, very thankful that the, the work that people had put in uh, hasn't been destroyed. Yes, indeed. And how are you feeling about the future, Matthew? Christmas is a month away and we've got the summer beyond, which is going to continue wet. I know the SES is saying this is going to continue for months. How, how are people feeling about the next few months? Look, it's a, it's a hard one, Hilary, because they, at Molong being a very strong um, farming community, you know, we've, we've got a number of parents here at school that are farmers and that, that's what they do for their living, um, and the rain has caused a lot of problems for them, unfortunately. You know, it's... a only a few years ago, they faced a drought, which was heartbreaking in itself. And now they're into the, the, the rain that they're getting. It, it is heartbreaking. You know, the work that goes into it, they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars because of the weather. I, I know that they know that this is the case. They, they're not silly enough to think that things will be perfect. But coming into Christmas and times like that, it, it is very difficult for them to con- you know, continue doing what they're doing. Um, as far as the flooding goes, I think, you know, I think people are, of wanting Christmas to be here. We want this to be over. The end of the year probably can't come quick enough for a lot of people at this time. I, yeah. think. I think a lot of people are on the same page as you, Matthew. Look, thank you so yeah. much for taking some time out of your day to, to chat to us. I hope the injury improves and, and all the best to the, the people of Molong. Thank you, Hilary. You take care. And oh. thanks, thanks for the time this morning.
Pleasure. Matthew French, principal at St Joseph's Primary School in Molong. Uh, and as we said, we, we were uh, hoping to speak with one of the uh, people from the U- Ukrainian families who've settled in Molong. But uh, as you all know, there's a bit going on there and it was a bit too difficult to contact her. Well, after that, it might be a good time to sit back and reflect and hear some tips on finding the calm moments in life. There's a growing body of research which shows that meditation can have a positive impact on our minds and our bodies. But I'd love to hear if you found a way to create moments of calm in your day, whether you practice some kind of meditation or not. How's it gone for you? On ABCRN, you're with Life Matters. With ABC Listen, explore a whole new world of podcasts and live radio, like unpicking fast fashion in Veronica Milsom's podcast, Threads. The marketing tricks being used on us right now. Or learning to spend less and live better with Nazim Hussain's Pineapple Project. Do we all really need it? And if we do, how do we get it for cheap? The ABC Listen app. A whole new world of live radio and on-demand audio entertainment. Download it now from your app store. When it comes to doing something that's good for your health, does it help you to know that there's a credible scientific uh, evidence backing that up, that a practice is good for you? Can that provide extra motivation to take something on board? Scientific evidence is growing about the effect that meditation can have on our minds and our bodies. Erica Voles spoke with a neuroscientist and a meditation teacher to find out what this evolving area of research means for our daily lives and what we can do if we hit a snag during meditation practice. Sitting down, take a comfortable position, let your hands rest on your legs, can close your eyes, and I would invite you to just breathe and keep the attention to one single thing, just monotask and be conscious of the breathing. It can be really hard to slow down, take a breath, even laugh sometimes. So, some turn to meditation and mindfulness. That's what Belgian neuroscientist Stephen Lowry's did. Thoughts will pop up. Notice that and you bring the attention back to your breathing. Do two more. That is excellent. That actually was excellent, but it takes time. And then there's that other voice that says, is this doing anything? Stephen really thinks it is. Hello, my name is uh, Stephen Laures. I'm a neurologist, work in the University Hospital in Liège, Belgium, and I'm a brain scientist leading the Giga Consciousness Research Unit at the University of Liège, but also and currently at the University Laval in Canada. But about a decade ago, neuroscientist Stephen Lowres was not convinced about the benefits of mindfulness and meditation, not at all. Then he went through an unexpected divorce. You're absolutely right. It's actually when I defended my PhD on, on consciousness and the brain and a journalist asking me, well, Professor Lowres, what do you think about mindfulness? And, and as a scientist, I checked the scientific papers at the time. And in the book, you see this graph of how many things changed in the past two decades. And I wasn't convinced at the time, and a lot has changed since. And mainly because I went through a, let's call it, personal crisis that was 
2012. And also because I met Mathieu Ricard. He's a Buddhist monk. And he was in Paris giving a talk on meditation. And I was there talking about brain damage and consciousness. And he invited me to a retreat, which opened new world for me. And I invited him as a guinea pig in our lab and saw with my own eyes how meditation changes your brain. It was quite obvious the stress I was in and, you know, the little voice in my head, and we all know that, was turning around and around and keeping me from falling asleep and was projecting the future and, and seeing catastrophic scenarios. How am I going to manage this? And I was drinking, smoking and sleeping pills and antidepressants. And I wasn't the daddy and the inspiring father I wanted to be. So yoga was for me the first discovery. But then, yes, it was meeting with now my good friend, Mathieu Ricard. He's the translator of the Dalai Lama, who also is a scientist in molecular biology. And that really changed my opinion. Stephen Lowers has since remarried and become involved in researching the effects of meditation on the brain. He's also written a book, The No-Nonsense Meditation Book, a look at the science with simple meditation methods and tips and a simple message, do what you can. And Stephen will meditate while cooking or while catching public transport, even running. But even he admits that his first attempts at meditation were pretty challenging. I remember 2013 when I was at Mind and Life Europe, the first retreat they organised, I felt a little bit like being an amateur at the Olympics with all these, you know, marathon runners. And when these monks would hit the gong and, and there you sit with just your little voice thinking and thinking. And meditation is like mental gymnastics. There's a number of exercises. And since then, I discovered a couple of them and I'm now very happy to share them. And you outline in your book all of the extensive research, the benefits and sometimes the downsides that meditation can bring not only to our mental well-being, but also our physical health. But as a neuroscientist, you also point out that it can be hard sometimes to find good studies with all of the relevant controls in place that add up to credible scientific data. So perhaps can I ask you, what do you think of the most profound physical and mental health benefits that studies have credibly shown to flow from meditation? Well, maybe there's two worlds. One is I would prescribe meditation in patients with chronic pain, with anxiety, with depression, because indeed there are controlled clinical trials showing that the effect of meditation can be as big as that of the medication that I prescribe. And then there's two types of studies. One is the scientific evidence that meditation has an impact on the brain, on the body, the immune system, even level of your chromosomes. And then there is the translation of that to clinical practice. And I think there we need more studies where really we should define the endpoints, the indication, contraindications, side effects. And unfortunately, when I go to conferences, medical conferences, it's still the vast majority about the, the pharmaceutical interventions. And I would like to see that differently in the future. 
Matthew Ricard, the, the Buddhist monk and scientist who inspired you to look at meditation and mindfulness, he lived with you for a while and you studied his brain in your laboratory and you scanned his brain while he meditated and you also measured the amount of grey matter that his brain has and, and he's in his 70s. What did you find? Well, interestingly, his brain is like 10, 15 years younger, neurologically speaking. And more specifically, in, in the book, you see the different structures that are just bigger in volume. And, and we're not going to compare meditation to sport, but somehow, if you start running, you get strong muscles in the legs. If you start swimming, strong and bigger shoulders. And meditation somehow could be compared to that. It's all about attention, right? And it's focusing your attention on one object, breathing or a mantra you would repeat in your head, or being open to sensory input, or training compassion. And depending on what you do, we really saw in these experts meditating a lot that their gray matter increased, and also that the connectivity, so the strength of your brain is those billions of nerve cells interacting with each other. And we saw, for example, that the left and the right hemisphere were more interconnected. The highway connecting these both halves of your brain were just bigger. And most importantly, of course, is the observation that you don't need a Buddhist monk. Uh, studies show that if you and I, we start to meditate already after eight weeks, we can have those visible effects on brain scans. So these uh, results have been replicated in other individuals and we don't need to be kind of Olympic standard meditators to have increased grey matter? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. We also observed next to the structural brain changes when we injected radioactive sugar and your brain uses a lot of energy that Mathieu Ricard and these other meditators had a, a higher metabolic brain activity. So starting age 40, your brain energy use goes down. And meditation, it has been shown repeatedly, can have a positive impact on that normal aging process. And now even in Europe, multicentric studies is trying this out in people who are at risk for dementia. I, like many people, use meditation apps, particularly to get to sleep, and, and sometimes it's, it's great. It often does help me go to sleep, but sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm not paying attention to the person who's leading my meditation, and I know others who meditate and their minds just wander. Sometimes with meditation, you can kind of hit a bit of humdrum. You can kind of hit a bit of a plateau. How do you get around that? Yeah, to me, there's no meditation session that is bad or failed. If it was more challenging because you felt more restlessness or you were distracted the whole time, well, that's fine. You know, it's accepting that there's no good or bad meditation. It's, you know, you do what you can and you appreciate and you observe what's going on in your mind. And if you do that, you kind of have some control. You create some distance between you and your thoughts. You are not your thoughts. And then you can start doing that with your emotions. Trust yourself. You're doing great. Just appreciate that things change and one session will be different from the other.
Mahesh Krupi Aquilan has been teaching meditation and yoga for many years. Originally from Malaysia, she used meditation as a technique there for stress reduction with corporate clients. So as you tune into your breath, let's start our own breath. Breathing in, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and out. Oh. Breathing in, two, three, and she's found some simple meditation techniques along the way, like this OM meditation, one of my favourites. Breathing in, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Breathing up. Oh. Mahesh Krupi Aquilan says some students can encounter real difficulties with meditation, such as feeling very overwhelmed by emotions or just unable to sit still. In these instances, Mahesh says she turns to physical forms of meditation, like yoga. When the physical body is all knotted up and stressed and tensed, you know how you'll have neck ache and back ache, all of that can be easily taken care of with some yoga practice. That's the physical aspect that I was talking about. So once you get into some of the movements, get some stretching down, some flexibility happening, and getting the body to loosen up. And then you go on to deeper levels. That I find working really well. And with the the physical body exercises, not only are you working out, stretching out, flexing out, reducing the tightness and lengthening the muscles, you're also learning to focus as we do the yoga. So we involve the physical body and the mind. Have you experienced that with students, some who just get really overwhelmed by emotions when they meditate? Yes. Mindfulness and meditation, it's become ubiquitous, right? But as we heard, not everyone has a great time meditating. Stephen Lowry says that controlled clinical trials are monitoring situations where meditators experience adverse impacts. But we also need to be more aware in our own various meditation journeys. Do you warn against going with just one teacher or following just one approach and you say you go into alarm mode if you read that a certain method is the only authentic one? And I guess what you're saying there is guard against dogmatism or even cults. But you also say our strictly scientific mindset should not overshadow our sense of spirituality. So it's a complicated journey, right? Absolutely. It's finding your balance. And I was raised Christian, then went to university and became scientist, everything evidence-based. And when I would see my first child being born, you know, I could explain it biologically. I would see a rainbow, the stars, and we know the physics behind that. And yet there's a lot we don't know, right? And our ignorance is huge when we talk about the origin of matter, of life, of consciousness, which is my area of expertise. And then I just enjoy the wonder of life. And as a neurologist, of course, working in intensive care, confronted with dying people and the most catastrophic brain injuries after trauma makes you realize how fortunate we are and how really we should enjoy the moment. Stephen Lares says that when he's struggling with his meditation practice, he tries to mix it up, do something different. And so in the spirit of trying something different, Mahesh Krupi Aquilan holds regular laughter yoga classes. And Mahesh maintains that, yes, this is also a form of meditation. When you're laughing, 
I say this is the only phenomenon in the human body where sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system come together. Sympathetic meaning ra, ra, go, go, the active more, and the parasympathetic, which is the rest, digest, the relax more. And when they come together, it's like, ah, a technique called so hum. So putting your palms up, pressing it against the air front. So is pressing the palm forward in front of you and hum is pressing the palm downwards away from you. So. So. And hum, down. Hum. Hum. Yep. So. So. Hum. Hum. So. So. Hum. Hum. So. So. Hum. Hum. So. 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 Hum. And stop and laugh. I can't believe that worked, says Erica Vols, but it did. Mahesh Krupiaquillen, and before that, Professor Stephen Lowers speaking with Erica Vols. And you can find details about those guests and Stephen's book too, the No Nonsense Meditation Book, on the Life Matters homepage. Lots of uh, commentary about uh, that story. Jonathan says, having schizophrenia, I have a very busy mind. I have found stillness meditation to be a very effective coping strategy. Another text, this segment on meditation is fantastic, says Laura. As a yoga meditation and pranayama teacher, I'm desperate for more digestible scientific proof and explanations to share. We live in a world where everyone wants proof of the benefits these technologies bring, despite having been around for many thousands of years. That's from Laura. Tim says it's called meditation practice because every time you attempt it, you're doing just that practicing. That's an excellent way to think about it, Tim. And the the discussion about mosquitoes spawned many, many questions. We had, had no chance of getting to them all, but also a few comments. Greg, uh, sorry, Gigi in Mullum says, breed more frogs and microbats. They love mosquitoes. Just saying. Ian from Adelaide says, I re- apply repellent sprays to clothing sleeves and collars, etc., rather than directly to skin, and I find that fairly effective. Uh, Kerry Howard in Coffs Harbour says, We were told as children that the large mosquitoes are hexam greys, but they don't bite humans. Only the smaller ones would sting. Did you know there's a big mosquito in hexam in New South Wales? Aussie, the mozzie. <laughs> It's fantastic. They've given him a little kind of neon bit as well. Lovely. Uh, and Mozzie's, says Alison, fans inside make a huge difference. Thanks so much for all those comments via text. This is Life Matters, mosquito protection for the body, meditation for the mind. We'll be sticking with the whole self approach on our next episode, food for your mind and your stomach. We'll find out the latest situation across the country with COVID because sometimes our feelings of risk don't tally with the actual level of risk and there are glimmers of hope even as the fourth infection wave crests. Then we'll head to Tasmania and hear about food, farming and feeding our souls ethically and deliciously with Chef Matthew Evans, a holistic approach to life on Life Matters. Hi, Damien Carrick here from The Law Report. Good neighbours can be a wonderful thing, but when relationships go south, things can get very ugly very fast, even ending up in court. There needs to be a little bit of give and take between neighbours. 
there are some trees that are actually nicknamed neighbour haters. Do listen to our new four-part series, Know Your Rights, which delves into neighbour disputes involving excessive noise, damaging trees, disruptive pets and shadowing your solar panels. In any type of neighbourhood dispute, speak to your neighbour or the developer as early as possible and as often as possible. Once you've started that legal process, it can get very uncomfortable with the neighbours. You can find us at the ABC Listen app. Just type Know Your Rights in the search engine. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.